1: Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Verbo. Verbo is amazing. I've been using it. For years, it's been my little secret trick when I want to find, you know, a place to stay that's not a hotel, but something cool like a condo or a cabin or a place with a yard or grill or even places that are good for kids, okay? You need to use Verbo. okay? They do the hard work for you, matching you to the perfect place to stay every time. So when you want to feel more at home when you're going away or you're going away for a long time, Check out Verbo. That's V R B O in the App Store. Download the Verbo app today and put a stop to frustrating vacation searches. Let Verbo find a home that matches you. Um you remember Wolverine's The Long Night? It is a Marvel X-Men podcast that you never knew that you wanted, and now it's back for its second season. Wolverine is back. It's called The Lost Trail. It picks up with Logan in Louisiana, heading out, looking for redemption, trying to find his ex, only she's nowhere to be found. Dozens of humans and mutants have gone missing. What is up? We're going to find out from our friend Wolverine. Uh, Weapon X is in pursuit. Uh, Along the way, he's going to find Biker Games Gambit. Yeah, gambits in this, and a refuge run by a powerful mutant. You can listen to Wolverine, The Lost Trail, now on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to wolverinepodcast.com and use the promo code UNSPOOLED. And if you're a mutant, just stare at your computer and it will unlock. I, I think that that's a mutant power. Anyway, Wolverine, The Lost Trail, get into it, listen to it, marvel for your ears. It's
0: 1937, and being beautiful can get you killed. The movie Snow White. Hey everybody and welcome to Unspooled. I am film critic Amy Nicholson, and my co-host is Paul Scheer, and he will be here in just a second. But this is a show where, as you know, we are going through the AFI Top 100 from the 2007 list and talking about these movies with each other and with you. And last week, the movie we were talking about was Charlie Chaplin's City Lights. He has many films on this list. He's got City Lights, he's got Gold Rush, he's got Modern Times. And so one of the questions we kicked around a little early, because we haven't gotten to all of the other ones yet, is... Would this be the best representative chaplain? And we got a bunch of answers from all over the board. Like from JF, who said, Even though this is my favorite chaplain film and I own it, I think this list could be pruned down to one representative chaplain. And because most of what we think of as quote-unquote chaplain, the dinner roll scene, you know, the little dancing rolls on the forks, eating the shoes, that all comes from the gold rush, which means I would keep gold rush. That being said, City Lice is sublime. Shay Casey was over on the other side. He said, actually, I got confused and watched Modern Times instead of this one first, but that made a really interesting comparison because Modern Times should probably be ranked higher and that would be the one that should stay on the list, maybe because it's more impressive as a filmmaking achievement and more influential because the lead actress, that's Paulette Goddard, is amazing, which is definitely true. And yet so many people tweeted this at me, which made my day every single time I saw it, which is, I put on City Lights, I didn't know what to expect. Oh my God, I laughed so much, I can't believe how much I adored this film, which warms my cold little heart, especially because Paul did not love it as much as I did. Since he's not here, I can write him out just a tiny bit. And, you know, I guess we will carry on in our Chaplin crusade and watch everything and get to really, 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 really talk about it by the time we hit 100 films. By the way, speaking of Charlie Chaplin's effect in the Modern History, a.k.a. The Simpsons, Uh, we played this clip of a Simpsons episode where Mr. Burns jokes about having the suit that Chaplin was buried in, and Rick Drew said, oh, did you know that that relates to the twisted fact that Chaplin's body was stolen and held for ransom, to which I was like, what? I did not know this story. It is true. I did some research. And what Rick Drew is referring to is that You know, Chaplin died on Christmas Day in 1977. He was buried in this big coffin in um, Switzerland somewhere. And then, like three months later, his widow Una gets this call from these two men who are like, we have dug up your husband's body. We have it. Please pay us $600,000. And Una was like, nah, Charlie wouldn't care about it. He would think this is a little bit ridiculous. So she did not pay the ransom to get Charlie Chaplin's body back. And yet, the local police were like, this cannot stand... We cannot let this happen. Also, you know, it's like Switzerland. So it's, I mean, what else did the police have to do there? So what they did is they like staked out 200 phone booths in Switzerland. And then they finally did get the call months later from these like corpse robbers who had then by then taken the body and like reburied it in a cornfield. They called again, and they are like, come on, don't you really want your husband back? Come on, please pay us to take this corpse back. And the cops found them. It was two auto mechanics. They were arrested. One of them got four years in prison. The other one got an 18-month suspended sentence, which is really shockingly little for stealing Charlie Chaplin's body. Uh, and then he was reburied, and his new coffin is surrounded by thick concrete. So, whoa. I can't believe I didn't know that, Rick Drew. I uh, doubly respect that Simpsons quote, and wow. So I'm about to get fall into the studio right now, but our call to action last week for the film we're about to do, Snow White, is that we asked you guys to create a dwarf because Disney had a bunch of dwarves. We're going to get into that. He had scrapped dwarves. He had tons of dwarves on the rubble heap of dwarf history. So your turn now to create a dwarf and make its argument for it existing in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves.
2: How about the dwarf named Anxious? Always worrying about everything. So I think the 8th dwarf should be called Snazzy because he wears a tuxedo. I would like to propose a dwarf for the modern age. Selfie. My pick for a new dwarf to be topical, comes Feifei. Uh, snarky the dwarf. I think that he is the sarcastic one of the bunch, and I think that he can keep Grumpy on his toes. Wokey. The Twitter slacktivist. All I can say is sloppy. Don't have a reason why. You can interpret it however you like, but a dwarf needs to be named Sloppy.
0: Oh, my God. I do not know whether or not I want to live in a world where there is a dwarf named Selfie. Yes, I think I do. I think I do. I think I do. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that idea. And now let's get Paul in here and talk about Snow White. It's
1: 1937. A loaf of bread costs nine cents. The new car is only $760, and gas to fill it up is 10 cents a gallon. Amelia Earhart forever disappears over the Pacific Ocean. Daffy Duck makes his Looney Tunes debut, and the first blood bank opens in Chicago. Jane Fonda, Jack Nicholson, and Morgan Freeman were all born this year, and most popularly in pop culture, Disney releases their first feature-length animated film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, ranking number 34 in the AFI Top 100 list, moving up 15 spots from 49 in the first list. Amy, tell us a little bit about Snow White and the Seven Doors.
0: Snow White and the Seven Doors. It is the first full-length feature cartoon by the Walt Disney Studio, who had already been in business over a decade at this point, making hits. Uh, It is the famous German-ish story from the Brothers Grimm about a young princess cast out from her kingdom by a jealous stepmom queen because she's too beautiful, stumbles through the woods and discovers this this cabin, this little nestling cabin, cute little thing full of seven tiny men, and she dies, comes back to life when the prince kisses her.
1: This is a very simple story, I would argue beautifully told. I found myself completely just kind of caught up in it in a way that I wasn't expecting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you are with Disney cartoons. Like, when I was a kid, I watched all of them in all sorts of orders, and I never really knew how old they were, or in what order they came about, Or anything? You're just sort of like, there's this Disney VHS catalog.
1: Yeah, you get those big white clamshell VHS cases. That's what I had when I was growing up. And it was like so fun. You'd put them in and you knew that whatever was a Disney film was okay for you to watch. And they all felt about from the same era.
0: Yeah, I never knew that Snow White was the oldest until I was way older. I mean, I think you have some suspicions. You're like, Snow White doesn't sing like anybody from the other films. <laughs> you know, she sings like like she is from ye olden cartoon days.
2: Oh, no 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 no. Put them in the
0: But other than that, you know, I didn't realize, I think at the time, what a huge leap forward that film was because to me it was part and parcel with every other amazing cartoon I'd ever seen. Because basically Disney invented the special camera to make this film, the special animation style, and then kept it like all the way up to the films that I grew up on, like The Little Mermaid. And so it looked the same in
1: a lot of ways. Wait, so it's the same technology they used all the way up until Little Mermaid? Like that, I didn't realize that at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, what it's called is like a multi-plane camera. And okay. It's sort of like you're looking down at a lasagna, and uh-huh. the lasagna is each noodle is like a pane of glass, okay. and then each layer of tomato sauce is like an animation. So <laughs> I didn't really think this analogy out before I started talking. No, this but is how they it described
1: is. it to Walt Disney. Yeah, exactly. A big Italian food oh, fan. Oh, big, that's all you
0: think. And then maybe you're like finger painting in the tomato sauce, and as you do that on each different layer, you get this depth. So it looks real, which allows you to kind of pan in and out of the image. Because one of the things I find so beautiful about Snow White and the Seven Dwarves is it's not flat at all. Like when there's a tree in the corner of the screen, it's out of focus half the time. Right. Because it looks almost like you're looking at a real image.
1: It's interesting because when I was watching it, at certain points I would just kind of sit and look at the background. And it's still because it's not the part that is where your eyes are supposed to be focused. And I think what is so impressive about this is this is 1937, and it's so seamless. Whereas maybe even some of the cartoons I grew up with in the 80s, you can see that kind of separation between what is the frozen frame in the back and then what is happening in the foreground. And it seems, you know, so kind of naturalistic. I guess they didn't need to update the equipment because they kind of nailed it right out of the gate.
0: Yeah, you're. Right. I mean, it's almost hard to talk about what we're talking about because I never really put a word to it too when I was a kid. But yeah. the way that something lays on the screen like a shrinky dink, like it looks wetter I was gonna say like, than the rest of the screen. It like looks color like,
1: forms or something like that. Yeah,
0: the way I used to kind of play this game, I'd be like, oh, they're going to pick up that apple because that apple is like redder and shinier than every other apple wow, around Wow, that's it. a
1: good eye for a child to be able to be like, that apple's going to move.
0: I was a real cool child. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, every detail in this movie I find so just groundbreaking, amusing, a mix of all of it. I love the way how you have this opening book shot and all of the M's and magic mirror on the wall look like little dancing pants. And oh, it, yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. And I love things all the way up to like when they're singing another song um, at the end, all the dwarves and Snow White hanging out. They start using this fast cutting, almost like they're making a music video. There's just so many things in here that are forward thinking.
1: But, you know, what's even more impressive about this film in doing my research about it was that this is a, an idea that Walt Disney has, you know, when when he's 15 years old to make a movie about Snow White, like he's so caught up in this like 1916 version that he saw, you know, short film. He's like, I want to do this.
0: Yeah. I mean, the idea that Walt Disney was a teenager in 1916, I think is just so outstanding and crucial. I mean, this is a guy who was born basically when, The century starts. And he's a young man. Like, he makes Steamboat Willie when he's in his 20s. He's making Snow White before he's 40. He's like this young whippersnapper who just shows up and grows up with the movie business happening right here. I love this idea of Hollywood just remaking these stories everybody knew a million times and him being like, I want to do that, too. And I want to tell my version of this.
1: I don't think I've ever seen Snow White. I think that I understand what Snow White's about. I've been on the ride. I know what all the characters are. but. I've read the book, but I don't think I ever sat down and watched this wow, film. Yeah. Really? I had all my Disney, you know, VHS clamshell cases, but I never really was drawn to this one. So in watching it- Were you the Fox it,
0: and the Hound guy?
1: Oh, I love Fox
0: I and the Hound. I knew it, that I knew it. That was one of my favorite
1: <laughs> ones growing up. But that was like kind of when I was in the right age group for Fox and the Hound, because it came out when I was, you know, a kid, like the Muppets, Fox and the Hound. Muppets are not Disney, I know that. But, um, you know, the Rescuers, the Rescuers Down Under, like those were kind of my entry point into Disney films.
0: Yeah, I mean, what's really striking about just the structure of Snow White that I was really noticing on this watch is basically almost nothing happens for pretty much the entire movie, It's like Snow White gets, you know, she's singing in the castle. The huntsman is like ordered to go murder her. She runs into uh, the forest and like basically 50 minutes go by before she really sits down and talks to the dwarves and they have soup. And then the movie basically ends, like, 20, 30 minutes later.
1: Well, no, but that's a lot of stuff going on, Amy. I mean, you had a huntsman ready to kill a girl, put her heart in a box. You got this evil queen who's sending her out to be killed. She's in this scary forest, a forest that was so scary, according to urban legend, they needed to replace all of the seats in Radio City Music Hall because when the kids saw that scene, they all peed themselves. That story, wow. yeah, that story feels like it might be, like, Four kids did it. And they said every kid did it because. Even four is a lot, man. Well, think about it. 1937, you've never seen anything this scary. You would have to piss yourself. (laughs) I mean, but I mean, I I can't imagine the entire theater reeking of pee from little children. I mean, it seems like this is a story that's been passed down. A game of telephone. I'm, I'm betting four kids peed.
0: Listen, I am not calling Snow White Borg. But yes, there is like a stabbing scene, sort of. However, it's dark. However, the bulk of the, of the movie is like, let's do an entire song about why we should wash our hands. Oh, and that, then they were going Amy, to do a whole like, other song about how to eat soup. And Walt Disney was like, you know, I think that's too many songs where Snow White and Negra grow up a little no, bit. And they're like, no, are like, Okay, no. we'll wash our hands. It, look, you could take. I'm not dissing the song. I'm just saying that it's to me, it's a compliment that this movie is so good when the bulk of the plot is is about hygiene. <laughs> <laughs> and they clean a house. They clean a house for six minutes, and it's the best part. Whistle while
1: you work yeah. is one of the most classic songs. I would even argue that before this movie, there was no such thing as a soundtrack. Did you know that? This is the first movie that they made an actual soundtrack for because people are like, the songs are so good.
0: They're but- banging let me whistle at home. <laughs> you yes, know, yes, but what I love about it is yeah. when you put it all together, whistle while you work, the hand washing song, this is a movie that's in many ways about like being a good grown-up, and yet it's fantastic to watch. I want to
1: talk about the relationship between Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Um It's odd. You know, you have (laughs) this queen saying, kill this young girl and put her heart in a box. This is a children's movie. Okay, that's a pretty dark thing. Then she even says one thing that I thought was really uh, quietly said. I think we can even play a clip of it. She calls the person in the mirror her slave.
3: slave in the magic mirror come from the father's space. Through wind and
1: darkness, I summon thee. Speak.
2: What wouldst thou know,
0: my queen?
1: Magic mirror on the wall. Who
2: is the fairest one of all?
0: Yeah, so slave. So there's a whole backstory here, right? Yes. Where, like, she captured the mirror or put the slave into the mirror?
1: I want to see this story. Do you? I do.
0: I want the prequel.
1: No, uh, no, no, I don't. I don't. But I, I thought it was a darker story than I was expecting for a kid's film. Like I literally thought, oh, I couldn't let my four year old see this. And my four year old's watching Shrek and Minions, which are even a little bit above his age range. This felt to me much more adult.
0: But it is so weird how this is maybe one of those examples of our memory rewriting what a phrase is. Because if you ask anybody what the queen says, you'd probably guess that she said mirror, mirror on the wall. Yeah. Never says it. She says, slave in a mirror. And then she says, magic mirror. But mirror, mirror, which they even made like a Snow White movie called Mirror, Mirror. Yeah. Doesn't happen.
1: Well, can I just say to you, Amy? Mandela effect. Maybe there is a Snow White where she says, mirror, mirror, and we're the only ones that remember it. No, I love how our collective unconscious just messes stuff up, and we, like, lock it in. It's a movie that you couldn't really make now, or I don't think that people would want you to make it, because these dwarves, yes, they're now in our cultural lexicon as, like, of course, Seven Dwarfs, but if you look at it now and you said this is the first time anyone's seen it, here's a bunch of old lonely men, and this woman comes, and... They want her to kind of be their mother in a way that's bizarre. Uh, Not that they should be sexualizing her. I'm just saying, but it's like, why do these old men need a mother? Shouldn't they be the parent to the younger child? Uh, you know, because she's a very young woman. I just can't get a handle on what is going on in this movie. It is, I mean, closer to the Grimm's fairy tales that have been written than what I think we have now in our pop culture, which is a very sanitized. Everyone does everything the right way. It's sweet. It's normal. This movie is abnormal. And I think that's why I like it because it is engaging. It's like, whoa, they did that? They did that? Um, you know, you have a crisis of conscience where a man is going to kill a young girl. He's like, ah, I can't do it. You know, <laughs> it's like, That's a lot. That's a lot to put in a movie.
0: Yeah, because she's supposed to be really young. I think she's like 14 or 15. Wow. She's very young. She's a super baby. And it's fascinating because she shows up at the dwarves' house and it's very messy. And she's immediately like, oh, it must be children. And what I love about that is she's never for a minute being like... Don't they have a parent? She's just like, oh, seven children living in the woods.
1: And she also doesn't ask a lot of questions. I mean, after she eats the poison apple, she is dead for who knows how long. And then all of a sudden she gets a kiss out of the blue. She's up. She's on this guy's horse. And she's like later. Doesn't ask what happened. Doesn't really even say goodbye. It's just like bounce. I'm out. Who is this man? But she is willing to go with anybody at any time. This is a this is a cautionary tale. Don't just say yes and walk away as a stranger. Don't go into a stranger's house and expect it to be good. Don't eat an apple from a stranger. She does everything wrong. She never <laughs> learns a lesson.
0: But she's really good at cleaning. I mean, it's fascinating. Like her yeah. job before she shows up at the dwarfs house is she's a scullery maid. right? So she sweeps, she's good at tidying. Then she shows up at this house, she tidies it some more. Like her job is just to tidy. And then she predicts it in a kind of well, evil psychic she, way. She's like, someday, you know, her prince will come and he'll just kiss her and then she'll just immediately leave. And she makes it happen. She's kind of she's in that way. You know, Mary, remember Mary from uh, It's a Wonderful Life? Yes. She marries this whole situation.
1: Well, let me say that I don't think she's cleaning just out of the goodness of her heart. She's got an evil plan. She's, she's evil like cleaning? She's like, oh, if I clean up this house, they'll let me stay bingo, bango! I'm a smarty. You know, she's not just doing it out of the goodness of her heart. And
0: if I get these squirrels to help me clean, I'll have to clean even less.
1: This movie is gross. It is gross, (laughs) okay? The amount of, like tails wiping dishes and birds putting their feet in food disgusting okay it's no wonder every one of these dwarfs is not vomiting from some sort of airborne tick-based disease because she's like working with these animals here
0: they had stronger immune systems because of stuff like this kids who grew up in barns they're like less prone to getting allergies all right. This is basically. A test I grew attempt. up in a
1: barn. I have allergies. <laughs> yeah. Not allergic to hay, but I'm allergic to other things.
0: It is just funny
1: to see a movie that isn't overly sanitized. I think that's yeah. what I'm really responding. And to. And I
0: think there is weirdness in her relationship with the, with the dwarves that Walt just lets be, and I respect him for that. Yeah, the dwarves are very clear about like you can take our beds, we'll sleep on the floor. Like yeah. it would be improper for us to share even a floor of, right. like, of our house.
1: They're respectful of yeah. of of her sexuality, her space. They're actually very, gen- they're very woke for a 1937, yeah, these I mean, dwarfs. Dopey these old tries n- to
0: get a lot of kisses, but other than that. So. I know.
1: And Dopey, by the way, can we just say, if you don't see the connection to Harpo Marx
0: here. I was so glad you pointed that out.
1: I was like, this is almost a carbon copy of Harpo.
0: Yeah. I don't think I'd really realize that until we watched it right so closely after watching yeah. so many Marx Brothers movies. that They were basically like, everybody loves Har- Harpo Marx. Let's just put him in this movie.
1: And going back to City Lights, let's just even say what Charlie Chaplin had to say. He said that Dopey is one of the greatest comedians of all time. All right. So Charlie Chaplin even saw how genius uh, Dopey was.
0: Let me ask you a question about Dopey, though. Do you think he's the same age as the rest of the dwarfs? And if he is not, how does he show up there?
1: He looks younger. I'm curious about how all these dwarfs got together. Did they just meet at the mine? Uh, are they from the same family? I don't think they are, but yet they all have beards. Yet they all are kind of bald. Are they dwarfs or are they elves? Are they some sort of supernatural? Or are they? I don't know what they are. I, I don't feel like they're as old as they appear to be. Like they're not going to keel over the next day, but they do have fully white beards.
0: They do. None of them have mustaches. I think I like that a lot. The beards just sort of show up on their chin. They're all neck beards. It's
1: like a it's like a bad Santa beard that you would buy at a mall. And speaking of which, I love the faces of these dwarfs. They're so wonderfully animated. The face of the witch is gorgeous, and the evil witch even better. The huntsman. They all have these great faces, and then you go to Snow White whose face looks like someone airbrushed it on an Instagram filter. I was like, what is this a Kardashian? What's going on? Why can't I make out any? She has no contouring in her face. Her face is just generic, like kind of like washed out pretty. She has no features. She's got eyes and a little bit of a nose and big red lips. She's kind of like Betty and
0: Veronica. You know how Betty and Veronica have exactly the same face Mm. and exactly the same body. They just have different hair colors and neither one of them really has a nose. They just have nostrils.
1: Interesting. Yeah,
0: she's sort of in that kind of vein of beautiful from afar.
1: Well, you know, this is something that actually Walt Disney was obsessed with because the first drawings came back, and we can actually even post them up on the uh, Twitter, were much more Betty Boop-like. And that was something that Disney did not want. He didn't want Snow White to be sexy. Like, he wanted her to appear innocent and sweet-looking, and in effect created this whole idea of the Disney princess. I mean, the Disney princess is the biggest cash cow going right now, you know, it's and every one of them follows directly in these footsteps. I think their attitudes and energies are getting more and more current, but I would even argue here she is not a damsel in distress because she You know, she does run. She, you know, she may be a little naive, but I don't think of her as a weak character.
0: No, me neither. I mean, it's interesting because I feel like in a way you could say that the Snow White princesses after her have gotten even more cartoonish. You Mm -hmm. know, like I love The Little Mermaid, but Ariel, her eyes are so much bigger in her head. They're not even trying for any sort of naturalism in her body or her face or her figure. Whereas Snow White has kind of normal arms, kind of like a normal waistline. Normal waistline? Well, in the key of She's okay. a Real Human, you know, not well, like Pocahontas I mean, or something. And also, did you know that like there is a Flesher Betty Boop Snow White that was made a couple years before this? No. I've heard
2: about your
0: looking glass, looking glass, looking glass. I've heard about your looking glass.
1: What it says is so. <laughs> um.
0: It's very surreal. It ha- It's a short, it doesn't have like a complete plot Strange things happen. What you did not see, but you can picture, is that the evil queen's eyes turn into eggs onto a frying pan. (laughs) As she's so so jealous that Betty Boop shows up in her tiny miniskirt.
1: Well, and her garter. You know, that's 1933. This is 1937. And the gigantic leap forward in those four years of animation style is... Is really mind blowing, you know, and just looking at that and watching Snow White last night is it like, it's even more impressive within the world of how quickly they got to this place.
0: Yeah, and what's wild is like this Betty Boop cartoon, for example, is black and white and everybody was like you're going to do a full cartoon in color yeah. that's going to hurt everybody's eyes well, they're like you're going to blind people
1: and it and like and a feature length cartoon that seemed like if Walt Disney didn't make this movie would we still be doing cartoon shorts I, you know probably not i'm sure somebody would have come up with it eventually but but it uh, is
0: interesting that it's basically like James Cameron doing Avatar. Yeah, well, they called guys, I'm going to show you this new thing. And they're like, you're crazy. It won't
1: work. Called it Disney's folly. They expected this thing to be an utter disaster. And instead, it's a huge, huge success. I mean, so much so that Snow White gets a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Snow White, the character like that doesn't really happen that often. Like, you know, you know,
0: Donald Trump has a star.
1: He's at least a real human being. Uh,
0: like, I, you could argue,
1: I understand your point, Amy. <laughs> Take your politics out of this podcast. No. I think Rin
0: Tin <laughs> has a star. But he's, well, he's, he's a, a real dog. thing. He's a real Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Amy, I was
1: going to say, you said earlier about um, you never really heard a voice like Snow White. And you know why? Because uh, Walt Disney's kind of crazy. Walt Disney basically makes the actress. Uh, Adriana Casaletti, who's a speaking and singing voice of Snow White, and she was a singer in the Royal Opera, um, made her sign a contract that said that she would never act or sing in any other movies or radio programs after this. For $970, that's what she got total. She could never be on radio or in movies ever again. That is why this is her only major film role.
0: Like, <laughs> but she, she didn't cheated. Want to Yes. She cheated. What did she do? We've actually heard her voice twice. Really? So, or just in this podcast. Here, you can hear Adriana Castelletta in the very back of the scene from The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Aww. Wherefore Romeo. That is her. That is her in the Tin Man song. Wow. And we've heard her again in It's a Wonderful Life. Remember when like, he's in like the horrible nightmare scene and he goes to the bar and the bar yeah. looks really fun to us and there's a bunch of people at the piano? She's one of the people singing at the piano. Oh,
1: <laughs> Merry Christmas! Glad you Merry come! You. How about all that?
2: Good yeah,
0: we got everything. yeah wow. so she cheated. I like that about her. I, mean, I respect that.
1: But it wasn't like minor, she got to be a Minor Minor cheating, star. yeah. yeah. She's basically like, if you can hide, if you can be obscured. But I mean, that's such a crazy thing. He didn't want that character to be. Destroyed. So he's like, you could never do it again. Imagine a world where The Rock just does Moana and could never do anything again. Or it would it also be ru- a lot
0: less angry dentists fighting people for some reason. <laughs> Why? So that's the kind of movie he likes to make. I'm a mad dentist. Get out of my way. The Rock? Yeah.
1: You're talking about the movie The Tooth Fairy where he's a hockey player and has to go back and become The Tooth Fairy?
0: Oh, that's what it's about. Yeah. Oh, I never saw it.
1: Not a dentist. <laughs> and by the way, you're picking his least successful film. You would, you would argue <laughs> that of all the movies, you focus on the tooth fairy. Uh, I auditioned for that, didn't get it. Um, <laughs> but this is a fascinating beginning to a trend that I guess continues to this day, which is making these films that are for children. But also that parents can go to as well. And I, and I think at certain points we get far away from it. And when we get to a movie like this, that balances them both so well, like a Paddington, not to bring that back up. But it, uh, it feels so exciting because it has both of the elements that you want. And I think some people sometimes go too far the other direction.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering at this point in the show if there's ever been a movie that was called like So-and-so's Folly that didn't wind up being a big hit. Because doesn't this seem to be a story that we're being told over and over and over again? Like, this one guy, yeah, everyone but, said his movie would suck, and then he proved them wrong.
1: But then I don't think you hear the podcast where we're talking about, like, Heaven's Gate, and they're like, everyone said it was going to suck, and it did. Like, you know, like <laughs> I I, I, th- I think that all you only hear – it's not like people reserve that just for the good ones. It's only like – and I think people are often assuming everything is going to suck because whenever you have someone that has a big idea – They have a tendency to be a little bit more strict, a little bit more harsh. People get angry with them. And then the rumors start and the gossip mill starts and they'll never be able to do it. And they'll never, you know, it's different. Just by virtue that it's different, it must be bad. And, uh, you know, I think that Disney really proved everybody wrong. I think from this point on, no one said anything to Disney because he basically created, how would you even describe what, like, he's touched? Because it's more than just... Animation, It's theme parks. It's characters. It's it's the idea of this type of film. I really do believe that he firmly created not only a genre, but something even I, – I don't know what the word would be bigger than a genre.
0: I mean, I wonder, and there's kind of no way to really prove it, but would these Brothers Grimm stories be as important in our culture mm. if not for a Disney movie? You know, if he hadn't made these princesses be like massive things when I was a kid – Dude, these stories weren't that old, honestly. They're from like eight the early eighteen hundreds. They're all really sort of different and random, like yeah, there was one where like the queen was gonna eat liver or tongue or the tongue it was like a tongue or a liver in the box, which I've always found this whole idea that the queen can't tell what's in the box to be weird. Cause like she if, can't
1: tell the difference between a pig's heart and a normal human heart. Yeah,
0: because like if you're a person who's wealthy back in those days, I feel like you're eating a lot of organ meats and stuff. You know, you look at but like heart menus. seems chewy to me. Heart's delicious.
1: I mean, look, you're a queen. You've
0: never had heart.
1: I know, I've never had heart. Is that a thing? Everyone Whoa. also here reacted the same exact way.
0: What do you mean you've never, I never had heart? Am I the only one who's eaten heart? Yeah. I've eaten a lot of heart. Heart is wow. delicious. What? I'm I've surprised fe- This is nothing. You can get a heart taco at Grand Central Market downtown. Wow. You see the little ventricles? They chop it up. It's delicious. Wow.
1: Okay. All right. What kind of heart?
0: Ooh, it's pretty big. It must be a beef heart. But you've never had like chicken heart when you get a chicken? No. heart. No. Okay. Oh. In Peru, it's like a big thing eating heart on a stick so that you can okay. have heart on a stick around here if you feel wow. like it. Wow.
1: So, well, I mean, it's look. It's delicious. So the- I would
0: just think like if you're royalty, you're eating things like heart stuffed with baby peasant.
1: Baby peasants or or baby pheasants. Because either way, but I think peasant baby works. Baby peasant really works and that makes me go like, wow. You know what I found for a movie to be this dark, they also did a couple of things off camera. Like when she dies, uh, spoiler alert, um, she does it off camera. She takes the bite off camera. And I didn't know if that was because of any standards of the time.
0: I don't know, but it's really cool the way they film it. You know, they're mm-hmm. filming so many of the scenes in this Kind of like you would do a movie. They keep the camera on the queen's face and the queen being so excited as she watches Snow White die. And then you just see the hand fall down and the apple roll out. And what really struck me on this watch was just how much of Snow White really looks like a film. You know, it doesn't look like a cartoon to me. It looks like they're kind of imitating the look of what this movie would look like if you did it with real cameras. And and you know, there's some stuff that's like flashy, like when they're shooting her from the bottom of the well as Snow White is singing above, you see just water ripples, like the attention to detail on water ripples and stuff in here is beautiful. Well, maybe
1: that's what we're kind of getting into, is that not that it was a feature-length film in color. That wasn't the problem, or that wasn't what people were nervous about, but also like the idea that cartoons may have not had this much artistry in them. You know, and in a way, I think what Disney has always done is made these beautiful worlds, like you are fully in this environment. You know, when they bought Pixar, that was them going, oh, you guys have figured out how to do this. What we were doing, now you're doing it in a digital way, and we like that. And of course, they go back with like, you know, the Wreck-It Ralphs and stuff. But I feel like that was a natural extension of what they were doing in the 30s.
0: Yeah, I mean, it does feel like they have something sort of to prove with realism here. That I'm really impressed by. You know, there's this part where Snow White gets wet when she's running through the forest Mm -hmm. and she lands into the water. And when she gets out of the water, you see the gravity in her hair, like it's stringy now and it's being pulled down. Yeah. And you just think of everything he thought about to get that exactly right. Well, they're
1: doing that in a way that I think is one of the staples of Disney animation, which is they bring in a live-action model. And they did that for this movie, this young dancer, Marge Champion. uh, She was brought in, and her movements were recorded so the animators could observe them as a reference so they could, you know, bring an aspect of realism to the character. I mean, she also did modeling for other Disney characters, such as, like, the Blue Fairy and uh, Maid Marian from Robin Hood, and the Dancing Hippo from Fantasia. By the way, Robin Hood is a movie that I saw a bunch as a kid. That was a movie I loved.
0: I will say... At the risk of sounding creepy, that uh, like Robin the fox is maybe the most handsome Disney prince. Oh, I
1: totally agree. I think that like the foxes and the bears in the Disney world really got something going on.
0: I would like in a heartbeat sub out Robin Hood for the prince here. The prince here is fine, you yeah, know, but he doesn't really get barely much to memorable. Do. Yeah, they had this whole subplot where he got captured by the queen and locked in this dungeon and had to fight his way out and uh, all of this Who stuff. Who cares?
1: We don't need it. We don't need it. Basically, a guy who's seen this girl. She's like, "Ooh, don't look at me." And then But finds then she's
0: a- like, "But then she's like, hold on. Yes, I'm in rags, but whatever." She like primp[s] her hair and goes back out, and she's like, "Hello again." I, I admire that about her. She's like, "I'm in rags, so what? I'm still pretty."
1: And I think that that's such a great again idea. And I think you know this idea of princesses and Disney princesses has been very maligned. You know, um, we're sending the wrong signals that you know women need to be rescued by uh, a prince. I am just impressed that there are moments here where she is just not being taken care of but she is making some smart moves. She doesn't she doesn't seem like a damsel in distress at all times and I do think that Disney does try to do that often with their princesses. They they try to kind of subvert the norms a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean what I find to be Snow White's dominant personality characteristic is that she's pretty bossy Mm -hmm. she reminds me of this friend I have who's very good at being the nicest person in the world who somehow always gets exactly what she wants and it's like she always does it in a way where you can never be mad at her even though you realize she wins every single debate because she's just so sweet about it like here listen to the scene where Snow White is trying to find a place to stay and kind of maybe insulting the, the birds but also making sure they just find her some like digs already I can't sleep in the ground like you or in a tree The way you do. And I'm sure no nest could possibly be big enough for me.
1: Maybe you know where I can stay. In the woods
0: somewhere? You do? Will you take me there? So it's weird. It's like she's almost half... Hurting their feelings, maybe. That she's a, like, little a little manipulative. Yeah, yeah. She's very manipulative. And I think she has a sense of humor. Because here, you know, Grumpy totally hates women. He, yes. let's, let's listen to a clip of how much well, Grumpy hates women. Maybe
1: he's just been burned. Maybe the person who, you know, birthed him, left him <laughs> alone with six other men.
0: I do think it's very that Grumpy, the person who hates women, kind of has a southern accent and all the other doors don't. Oh,
1: just like a angel. Angel. Huh.
2: She's a female.
0: And all females is
2: poison. They're full of wicked wiles. Oh, what are wicked wiles? I don't know, but I'm against
0: them. But then, but then Snow White like she sees that he's grumpy and kind of hates women, and she just makes fun of him. She does like a making fun of grumpy voice, which I think is really charming.
1: You
2: must be. Happy ma'am. That's me and this is Dopey. He don't talk none. You mean he
3: can't talk?
2: He don't know. He never tried.
3: Oh, <laughs> that's too bad. Oh, you must be grumpy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> We know who we
1: are.
0: Ask her who she is. What's she just doing here? I mean, that she has a sense of humor. She's surrounded yes. by these men she just met. And she's like, "Oh, I'm going to make fun of that one.
1: I do want to talk about Doc. So every one of these dwarfs are named appropriately for the thing that they do. They sneeze, sneezy, you know, dopey, dopey, you know, grumpy, grumpy. But Doc is a straight up idiot. All right. Doc is somebody I, I hope he is not a doctor because... He seems to be the one with the worst uh, instincts of all of them. Um, And I just wanted to know, like, why is he called Doc? I didn't understand. I didn't know. As a kid, I always thought he was like the doctor, like he took care of them. But after this view, I'm like, he is not medically sound. Yeah, he's
0: like a Ben Carson. He's going (laughs) to run for president.
1: Well, now I understand why they have such a nice dining room set there. So it really looks good.
0: (laughs) He's got glasses. That makes him smart. I mean, you know that they were going through a bunch of different dwarves to figure out what the dwarves should be. And like Mm -hmm. uh, Walt Disney came up with a bunch of dwarves. I thought I could list them. But then I found this clip of Angela Lansbury listing all the dwarves he thought of. So let's just hear her talk about it. Okay.
2: Walt wanted to create seven distinct individuals with names that echoed their personalities. Some of the names considered included... Awful, hoppy, weepy, dirty, cranky, hungry, sneezy wheezy, lazy, snoopy, goopy, wistful, soulful, gabby, blabby, flabby, crabby, helpful, tearful, thrifty, shifty, nifty, and big old ego.
1: Okay, I need that clip <laughs> locked in, and I need to go to sleep to that every single night. That is amazing. And by they the way, go lazy. Go. <laughs> Some of it so lazy, like, <laughs> like it just it just felt like after a while it was like a writer's room that that every idea stayed. It was like uh, Goopy, yep, on the board. Snoopy, like Snoopy. We now know because of Snoopy, but it was like, but Snoopy in 1930. What's all right, Snoopy? He snoops around. I was like sneezy Weezy! Like, what are we doing here? Um
0: It is weird that the doors don't embellish the coffin with gems because they have so many gems that they're just throwing the gems away.
1: But by the way, that coffin has some sort of supernatural glass on it or something. It feels like, I mean, is she in glass or is she just out is her body just out and about in the air?
0: Yeah, because she looks like she's in glass, but then it doesn't seem like they remove the lid in order for her to get kissed.
1: Right? Yeah, it seems like maybe what they do is take the lid off during the day. When they're mourning her and then put the lid on at night, it's sort of like, um, you know, when you have like outdoor furniture, you take the cushions off uh, at night and then you put it back on during the day so you can enjoy it. I mean, what a depressing end of this movie. They find her beauty. So they're like, she's too beautiful to be buried. We like we can't even get her in the ground. She's too hot. Um, so they keep her out and they keep like a vigil for her. Um, which is a really like just dark idea. How long was that going on? It seems like for a long time because there's no end game. It wasn't like they're keeping her out there until a prince comes along. It's like, nope, too pretty to put underground. So we were, (laughs) our life will now be devoted to celebrating the beauty of this dead woman.
0: When I went to Cairo last year, like Mm -hmm. I went to the Egyptian museum. Mm -hmm. And if you pay like a couple extra cents at the Egyptian museum in Cairo, they let you go to the room where all the mummies are. Oh, wow. And it's really wild because it's like famous mummies are up there, like Hatshepsut is up there, mm-hmm. and like Ramses II is up there, and they're all under glass, just like this, just laid out for you, where you can see like their bones and their teeth and stuff. Oh, it's wow. just them; it, right. they're not in sarcophagi. Wow! And it's really weird because they have these kind of name plates that are all a little bit neggy. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, they're like Hatshepsut was a little bit chubby. You can see. You're like, what? Wow. It's like real dark. And they're like, this person was knock And all they list about each famous pharaoh that's up there is like a something bad about the way they looked. And it's kind of dark to think that once you die, people can just stare at your body and do whatever they want.
1: Uh, tell that to the people who run Bodies, the exhibition, <laughs> the most f- fucked up weird museum piece that I went to and enjoyed. But it, when you think about it, you can't think about it while you're there. Uh, you can't think about the fact that these are probably prisoners that <laughs> – who did not agree to this at all. Now they're like shooting a basketball. Hey, everybody. Uh, We have to take a quick break in the show to hear a few words from our sponsors. And you know what? We have one of the best sponsors here today. It's actually Amy Nicholson. That's right. Amy has a brand new podcast called Zoom. It's from Focus Features, and it's for movie lovers who want to know everything. Um, You know Amy from this show. She is amazing and asks the questions that no one else is asking because her brain works in a fully different way. And each episode, she is uncovering mind-bending facts about science, technology, and history all through the lens of famous films. Um, She's interviewing experts and filmmakers as we kind of get into archetypes in Hollywood. Like the first episode was all about aliens in movies and it was called E.T. Phone Hollywood. And she kind of gets into what extraterrestrials really want from us. I mean, what kind of planet would E.T. actually be from? And uh, writer-director Rupert Wyatt tries to answer some of these questions and talks a little bit about, you know, how to conceive aliens for film. Um, second episode is if you know Amy is kind of a right in her wheelhouse it's all about famous horses famous horses in film and uh her and writer director Laurie Declermont uh, De uh Toneray uh dive into exactly what the perks are of being a celebrity horse actor and we hear the stories about these famous Hollywood horses um and even how one Hollywood horse uh Was accused of murder. That's right, murder. So Zoom is just kind of an extension of this show in many ways where Amy gets to deep dive into subjects that she's interested in through the lens of film. I think you'll like it. Listen and subscribe to Zoom on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: So we are here with a very special expert, J.B. Kaufman. He is an author, a Disney historian, an animated genius who knows everything. And he has written... Not one, but two books on Snow White. I can tell he's already having a little bit of that Snow White blush happening right now as I'm complimenting him. Uh, But he wrote The Fairest One of All and Snow White and Seven Dwarves, the art and creation of Walt Disney's classic animated film. He's the guy for history. So, JB, hello. Welcome to Unspooled.
2: Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be
0: here. You know, most of us have grown up in this post-Disney world where he's been the biggest director, the theme park guy, the fabric of our culture – I'd love to hear from you what it was like to be Walt Disney in the early 30s. You know, there's a lot of animators in town. He's a pretty young guy. He hasn't proven himself yet with Snow White. Like, who is he to the industry? How do they see him? What is he like? Yeah,
2: the thing about about Walt Disney is that he he is kind of a classic American success story. And, uh, you know, because he really did start out with, with basically nothing except... His imagination and and, uh, and a tremendous drive to uh, to do new things. Um, now, I don't want to make the mistake of criticizing um, earlier cartoon producers too much, because it it is the case that that there was a lot of great animation done in the silent era and and early sound era. But the the difference that Walt Disney made is that um, you know there were there were there were people who. We're going to the movies then and and seeing cartoons by by the greats like Windsor McKay and and, uh, the early Fleischer studio. But cartoons at that time were still regarded as kind of a novelty on on the outskirts of of the movie business. And when Walt had his big break with uh, Steamboat Willie, um, suddenly people started sitting up and paying attention because he was, he was coming up with great and, and clever new ideas. And I think he brought a new level of acceptance to the whole art of animation.
0: What's so wild to me about this is, you know, when Steamboat Willie comes out, he's only like 27, 28 years old. He's really, really young.
2: Yeah, he, he, was, he was a very young guy. And, and the thing about it is, as I say, Steamboat Willie was, was kind of um, his lucky break, although one could argue that he made a lot of that luck himself. But, um, but even taking that into account, I think a lot of people, if they had had a hit like Steamboat Willie, they would have been content to just sit back and relax and keep making Steamboat Willie over and over again for the rest of their careers. And for, for Walt, that was just the springboard, the, the opportunity to try more and, and, and better and bigger things. And, um, and I think one of, the, one of the distinguishing things about Snow White uh, is that... Uh, by by breaking the boundaries of the one reel short and making this a feature length film that was the the central attraction on the bill at any theater that was showing it, he kind of he kind of culminated. This was kind of the culmination of um, of all the great things he'd been doing in the 1930s. It's just it's it's just like a, a treasure trove of uh, the art of animation. And, and all the great developments that his, that his uh, studio had introduced.
0: When you were researching your books, you were able to look firsthand at so many of these original notes, these drafts, these sketches, to see this history of this film taking place. And I'm wondering, from looking at these actual objects and seeing maybe the notes that Disney might have scribbled to as other people, to himself, what is your sense of him as a person, as, as a personality?
2: Well, um, it, it's clear that he was a perfectionist and I I think we we kind of knew that already but um I think the biggest complaint that his artists had about about him uh back in the day was that he was a really tough boss he he kept he kept pushing them to do more and more but um they also kind of universally acknowledged that he inspired them to do more than they thought they could do so if if he was if he was hard to please it was also a really gratifying thing when they really did please him and and Deliver something above and beyond what had been done before.
0: How do you think he would have handled it if Snow White had failed? If it really had become Disney's folly?
2: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think that well, it, it would have been a pretty devastating thing. And what he always said afterwards was that um, if it had failed, that would have been the end, because because he um, he had gone deeply into debt to make the film. He he and Roy had. Had hawked their life insurance and and their cars and everything else, it would have been a pretty tough thing. But I I still think that my money would have been on him because he was somebody who always managed to find a way uh, out of out of the the worst difficulties.
0: What scene in Snow White took the most work?
2: Uh, I think that what what took the longest time I think was story development because one of one of the secrets of Disney's success is that everything was carefully planned, and a lot of planning went into the making of Snow White. So, story work actually took something like uh, two and a half years, really, before they were finished. Now, uh, the animation, of course, uh, was was uh, in a, in another way the most difficult part of it, and uh, there were there were two major challenges in the animation. One was doing the more or less human characters like Snow White and the prince that was that was in one way the most technically demanding thing because that is the most difficult kind of animation to to create a convincing human figure and 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 they and they deliberately didn't make snow White uh, they didn't construct her according to actual accurate anatomy you know it, it was it wasn't she she didn't have realistic human proportions. At the same time, they were striving for the effect of, of a fairy tale princess, and they wanted her to be um, a convincing human figure. And there weren't very many artists who could handle that. So so that was one kind of challenge. The other is one that I think gets overlooked a lot, and that is the animation of the dwarfs. A big part of, of what was what was important at the Disney Studio during the 1930s was what they called personality animation. And that was the craft of expressing a character's personality by the way the character moved. I think anybody who has studied acting will tell you that if you have a character who's going to walk across the room, there are probably a hundred different ways to walk across the room. And every one of those walks will tell you something about uh, the character and and the mood that he or she is in and so on. And animation is the same thing, except you're doing it with a pencil. Um, So, one of the reasons that I think this story appealed to Walt in the first place was that the seven dwarfs were kind of a textbook uh, exercise in character animation. You've got seven little guys who are all about the same height, and most of them have a similar appearance. And yet, every time one of them comes onto the screen, you've, you've got to be able to identify instantly which char- which dwarf that is. So So there was some brilliant character animation of the dwarfs that was done so effectively that I think sometimes we see it now and just take it for granted. But uh, in fact, it was a very, very difficult thing to do. And I think uh, the, the thing that I always like to point out about that, one of the first times you see the dwarfs in the film is when they're walking home from the mine and singing hi-ho. And you know, there's that that long shot of them walking across the, the log that's fallen across the chasm. You know, it's kind of a yeah. natural bridge. Um, the next time you watch the film, watch them walking across that log because they don't just march across like little tin soldiers. Each one of them has a different walk, and that walk will tell you something about the character so Grumpy stomps across you know as if he's mad at the world uh, because he probably is <laughs> um, Bleepy uh can just barely drag himself along bashful is kind of the romantic one, so he's kind of kind of lollygagging along and, and daydreaming about something. And and each one of them has this distinctive walk. And, and I just think that, you know, that's something that I think an audience can easily overlook uh, on a conscious level. But I think subconsciously, it starts to set up these characters in your mind and you get to know them as the movie goes on.
0: So part of my theory as to why Snow White is the Disney film that has made it onto the AFI Top 100 list is in part historical because it definitely changed history in its existence and its creation the technology that he made in order for this film to even exist. But do you <laughs> think if Walt himself could have picked which of all of his films he would have wanted to be put on the list, is this the one or would he have picked something else?
2: Peter Bogdanovich asked him that question in the 1960s, and this was late in Walt's life. And uh, and at that point, he he said that he probably would pick Snow White. Um, and he, he said... Uh, it, it his his reasoning was just that, that he was sentimental and that was their first but it is it is um i i think there's there, i think there's more than sentiment to recommend it 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 is just uh just a tremendous work of art and um the the novelty value it, it was not technically by the way it wasn't technically the first animated feature, but it's also true to say that there had never been a film quite like it before. But as I say, there's, there's a lot more to it than novelty um, because you can see it over and over and, and, and find new details in it each time and, and get to know the characters better and appreciate the music more and more. Um, it's, it, it really is a film that just keeps on giving as, as you come back to it. One of, um, one of Walt's top animators was asked in later years what he thought was Walt's, was Walt's greatest film. And his answer was, uh, Pinocchio was Walt's greatest film but snow white was his greatest achievement and i think uh i i think that's a, a pretty good assessment of, of the
0: film absolutely and now just for us before we go you said that it uh wasn't the first animated film and i didn't know that actually is there another film right before this the animated feature
2: yeah well it's um as as you as you know uh it's it can be really dangerous to use the word first when you're talking about film history <laughs> because True. you know Whenever you uh, whenever you say that anything was the first anything, somebody's going to come up with with a precedent. Um, there had been, I, I think, the most famous um, precedent today uh, is the Adventures of Prince Ahmed. It's it's a silhouette animation film that that a, a German animator named Lotte Reiniger made in in 1926. She um, she made a. In fact, she had a long career making silhouette animated films. And the, the Adventures of Prince Ahmed was was uh in feature length. And it's a beautiful film to look at, but it is very much um a curio. You know, it's 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 a novelty and it's it's not you you don't picture it being the centerpiece of, of a movie programme the way Snow White is.
0: I love that. Well, it has been so wonderful talking to you. I really appreciate you taking the time. J.B. Kaufman, author of The Fairest One of All, and also the author of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, the art and creation of Walt Disney's classic animated film. J.B., thank you so much for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
1: It's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: So, Amy, this and
1: Toy Story are the only two animated films on this list, and you could make an argument that this was the beginning of this type of animation and Toy Story in many respects was the beginning of this kind of digital Pixar animation. Do you think that animation is underrepresented on this list?
0: I do, and what's what's interesting about those two picks is that they're basically there, I feel like, as firsts. Right. You know, like, this is the first of this type of style, and Toy Story is the first of the type of style that then killed this type of style. Right. Which, I, I miss this type of style. I really do like the kind of 2D-ish flat animation like this. I'm, I don't know. Not everything has to be, like, so pixel-perfect to me.
1: No, but I think that's why, you know, Spider-Man was really fun into the Spider-Verse, because they kind of played with different animation styles, and you can make it really exciting and bold. And I know we talked a lot about maybe that would be the movie that would, you know, be on this list in a, in a future incarnation, but it is weird as much as I love Toy Story, and we'll get into Toy Story, you know, later on, uh, I wouldn't necessarily pick that to be the definitive Pixar movie. I, and although this, watching it now, not knowing what to really expect, and knowing All the things that we know about it culturally, I find it to be very entertaining. I I do believe that this belongs on the list. I mean, it definitely belongs on the list. I mean, do you agree or no?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's weird because it's not my favorite of the Disney's, Mm -hmm. although I feel like I have very weird Disney taste. Like probably my favorite mainstream of the Disney's might be might be Alice in Wonderland or Pinocchio. Okay, but then I have like the hugest spot in my heart for Fantasia, and I love Three Caballeros, which is the weird oh, one, yeah, where they're like south of the border and they're like learning how to dance the rumba and stuff, and there's bullfighting. Like I love those ones so much. Even the Black Cauldron is like one of my oh, favorites. Oh, Black Cauldron, so
1: great! Yeah, yeah. And so- then how about the ones where they even mixed animation and live action, like you know Pete's Dragon and stuff like that? They, for me. The one I enjoyed the most, or the two I enjoyed the most as a as a kid, you know, that came out around my time of going to see film, was like Lion King and Aladdin. Those two made the biggest impression on me. I was like, "Whoa, I love this stuff!" You know. And Sim and, is the
0: worst, by the way. If you watch <laughs> Lion King and you're all gonna have to, yeah, it's the worst. Oh, it's such a drag.
1: All right, we'll get into that. Okay. Um, but you know, and I think these movies often, you know, hit you at a point where. They where you culturally find them. And I don't know if this movie is as iconic as Wizard of Oz. I don't think people are visiting this movie as much as Wizard of Oz, but yet everything that it did, it's undeniable. It needs to be on this list. First soundtrack, first feature-length animated film. This style that was created that was copied for decades after, uh, it's inarguable that it needs to be on this list.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think I agree with you, even though I would say that of these traditional early ones, Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty have maybe better princes. Mm-hmm. You know, they have more interesting stories, more happens in right. those films. You know, but I still love this one so much. It feels like such a touchstone. I mean, there's so many just, like, delightful little things in here that I adore. Like, I just want to almost just list everything yeah. I love in this movie.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um
0: I love that they have that old-fashioned angry red spider with, like, the big red legs who comes, like, stomping out. Oh, yeah. Like, I love how most of the animals in here are just the animals that Disney just kept doing forever. You know, like, that yes. style. He's like, this is the way I do a bird. Oh, he's, like, he's like, here's my cartoon bird, and here's my doves. And the doves look really real. And the doves look like real birds in the wishing well scene. Yeah. He's like, these are my squirrels forevermore. These will always be my squirrels. There's so much in here that then goes into the Wizard of Oz, for example. Mm-hmm. So it's almost even hard to pull them apart, you know, wondering about, like, which one has the most influence. Yeah. Because.
1: Who do you think is a better heroine? Dorothy <laughs> or Snow White?
0: Uh, Dorothy. But, like. When Snow White goes running through the forest, I mean, it basically looks like the trees are throwing evil apples mm. at Dorothy. You yeah. know, Even the scene where the, the queen creates that apple, I pulled it because she whirls into this tornado. You know, that whole scene of the queen getting evil and ugly. And By the way, I do respect that the queen, they did some earlier drafts where the queen was like uglier at the beginning. Oh, I
1: love that she's beautiful in the beginning. I love
0: that she's beautiful because if she is the most beautiful up until Snow White, she has to be beautiful. It's weird that they ever tried to make her ugly. Yeah. But, um this whole kind of crazy spell poison tornado thing happens and I was like oh that is also the Wizard of Oz they just moved that into the Wizard of Oz here listen It's just so wild. She's transforming to a witch in the same kind of atmosphere, tone, music, wind in the background as a couple years later, we're going to see like the evil neighbor turn into a witch. It's just unreal.
1: Do you think that back in the 30s and 40s, people are stealing a little bit more liberally because they don't know the future of this medium. It's sort of like, oh, yeah, we should do something like that, you know, And, and obviously people aren't renting this. It's not in people's houses. It's sort of like, oh, yeah, well, you know. I don't know if it's intentional, but it seems like right now, innovative directors do homages. Uh, but this feels like almost like direct cribbing. You know, it's like Quentin Tarantino, I think, has a great way of showcasing things that he likes from other films. But this feels, yeah, like an exact ripoff. It I feels mean,
0: so direct. Like, it was really weirding me out this watch, honestly. Like I, I'm going to play even like a clip of Sneezy. Okay. Because Sneezy in this scene, he sounds to me exactly like another character from The Wizard of Oz.
1: Huh? look golden rock don't do it take him away by those by hay fever. yes you know i can't stand it i can't i can't i, can't. Oh. I mean it's such i mean cowardly lion i Isn't mean that right, insane? i noticed that as well watching it. it you know and do you think that this movie has longevity because you know like the wizard of oz which played on tv to a certain point where people are watching it over and over again it gets part of like the culture. This is a movie that's been re-released so many times, you know, it comes out in, uh, you know, 37 it's re-released in 44. It goes back out in the theaters in 52, 58, 67, 75, 83, 87, 93, 87's is the 50th anniversary. Uh, and it just recently came out on iTunes, like a very special iTunes version of it. Like, do you think that that's how Disney's films stay relevant is by I know that back in the day when I was working for Blockbuster, you know, the big thing was like this film is going on moratorium. You can't get it anymore. And they kind of take it away and they re-release it to so there being an energy like well, I must get Fox and the Hound. It's like a lot of these films on this list are films that simply you can't escape. And yet and so then they become iconic.
0: So you're saying somewhere there's this marketer who's like, if I play my cards right for the next 45 years, we're going to get on the AFI list.
1: Well, you know, I just think it's it's interesting how you can create something by either limiting or releasing its availability, right? It's like it, like – If you feel like you're taking it away, people then are like, no, no, I need it. I need it. And you don't even know why you need it. And then when you get it, you're like, oh, I'm so happy I have it.
0: It is wild to me that I think this and The Wizard of Oz, perhaps because they're fantasy, Mm -hmm. might be the only two films you could release from this decade and put in front of young children and they wouldn't even blink. Do you know? Mm. Like, they would not be like, this is an old movie.
1: Right. No, I mean, it doesn't feel like an old movie.
0: So maybe there's something about the element of fantasy. I mean, Because I was thinking about this. Like, if Walt was alive now, mm-hmm. because I get mad at Disney a lot. I'm, like, very mad that Disney bought Fox. I don't like this at all. But, I, but like, Amy, I, the X-Men are finally going to be in the MCU. Whoa, I can't wait to not care. But I was thinking, like, if Walt was alive today, would he look around and be like, Oh, these Avengers movies, I'm doing some Star Wars over here. This is my life. And I thought maybe he'd actually be pretty okay with that. You know, if he was taking Brothers Grimm's property stories everybody Mm -hmm. knew, would he just look at an Iron Man universe and be like, yeah, kind of the same thing. Everybody knows these stories. Everybody knows these characters. Has Disney always been built on familiarity?
1: I think that Disney... Was very smart. I, I'm again, I said I'm big Disney head, and I kind of did. An, I have a lot of research about how he approached Epcot, and I think Epcot's a really interesting idea. Like, I think Disney was about creating entertainment, creating a world. Like, you know, like the most, you know, we talk about immersive theater, we talk about like these escape rooms, all these things can be filtered back to Disney. Like, he wanted to. Have you get lost in something? And I think Disneyland was the first attempt at that. And then he's like, I need to go even bigger. So he builds Disney World very secretly so he can have room to expand. It's almost like, I, it's like, a writer going like, I, you know, like James Cameron, like, I need to write five Avatar scripts. Like, he builds enough of an area that he can expand his ideas into. And Epcot was this idea of where he was going to be building the future, showcasing the future, getting scientists from all over the world to be testing out technologies. And you could see it and it would have like a perfect communal, you know, facilities. I think what's happened with Disney and the corporate Disney is... Is Disney was about forwarding ideas and, and and creating and expanding where we're going, and I think corporate Disney is like let's make that into a ride, like you know, and and I think that that's the difference, you know, the way that Epcot has been created versus how it was conceived, are the difference between Disney and corporate Disney. It, it speaks to a couple things because he has created these things like kids are going every day by the thousands on Snow White Scary Adventure in the theme park at Walt Disney World. You know, they, it's a ride that I probably rode before seeing this movie. I definitely did because I've ridden it many times. And so he's created the these- the Snow
0: White ride is the one that ends on a bummer. It's like Snow yeah. White's dead. And then like the ride ends. Oh yeah.
1: I mean, Disney rides are <laughs> the best. I mean, Mr. Toad's wild ride, you basically drunk drive, get hit by a train and go to hell. Yeah. Like it's the best ride <laughs> of all time. But I think that that, like, you know, the, he did have this dark side. And I think, I think the big difference with Disney as I continue to think about it would be like, I don't think he would be as PG as people make him out to be. I don't think he was like- Everything needs to be, you know, de- 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 you know, and I think mm, that that's probably I think Disney
0: knew that kids needed to cry. Like right. they needed a safe place or to cry their pants at or piss their <laughs> pants as their parents were there. And then afterwards they could all talk about it. Right. You know, it wasn't like, let me make you smile the whole time. And maybe like, because I, I feel like a lot of even Wreck-It Ralph is like oh, he loses his friend for a minute and it's kind of Mm sad-ish. But Disney was like, be scared and ask your parents for emotional support and then have a conversation about what sadness is. People are going to die. I mean,
1: Bambi is the perfect example of that. Yeah, moms
0: are going to get shot. Dumbo's really sad. Yeah. There's a lot in there where he's like helping kids through learning what emotions are.
1: Well, I think that, you know, talking about the, the Marvel world and how that goes, there are elements of that in this franchise too. You know, like there are stakes to these characters, things that you like go away, people die, things change. You know, it's not always a bright, sunny future. It's not also super dark. It's I don't think it's teaching lessons. But but I do think how
0: specific is it that the queen is like, I don't want Snow White dead. I want her to be buried alive.
1: Yeah, she loves that she's buried alive. (laughs) Amazing.
0: I mean that's so dark. But yeah, I mean I wonder if your definition of adult is also open to room for when the prince does show up at the end and kisses her and rides off. He kind of brushes back his cape for a second, and he has this little sword at his hip that looks so phallic, and Ah. it's right at his crotch. And I'm like, I wonder, is this now about her ascending into womanhood with this manly man with a little dagger by his hip right where she wants it?
1: But she's leaving the nerds. She's leaving the nerds all alone to be nerds again. I don't know. It's it's such an interesting thing because – the, like, she's not teaching the dwarfs to become better men. She's not providing... She's
0: civilizing them, but she's not raising
1: barely, them. Barely. I mean, barely. She just cleans their house. Like, she doesn't go, no, no, no. She t- Basically, the only thing that she leaves them with is washing their hands before dinner.
0: She teaches them shame. Like, I pulled up this clip <laughs> of her <laughs> teaching them shame. I mean, listen to her voice here. Supper's not quite ready. You'll just have time to Wash? Wash? Oh,
2: wash, I Knew there's a catch to it.
0: Let me see your hands.
2: Let me see your hands.
1: Why, Doc? I'm surprised.
0: <laughs> Come on, let's see them. My, my, my. And you.
1: So in that point, she's their mother. In other points, she's.
0: Or she's their like um, BDSM (laughs) dominator. I mean, come on. There's a little bit. Isn't there a little bit of that dynamic? There's a little of that dynamic.
1: Well, I mean, look, she definitely is bossy, uh, but I don't think, I mean, I think to have that. That that dynamic, it has to have a sexual connotation. I don't think there's any sexual uh, things going on with her. But I would say if she was ASMR, she's like, <laughs> she was like, clean those hands.
0: OK, I'm not saying she's getting anything out of it, but I am saying <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if a couple of the animators were like, it's a little hot that she's like, uh, show me your hands, you bad boy. <laughs>
1: Oh, God. Um, you know, so, Amy, when this movie comes out, you know, it's it's this huge hit, gets a standing ovation. This audience that's seeing it for the first time is, you know, Judy Garland, Marlena Dietrich, uh, Charles Lawton, even uh, overseas, this movie is a hit. Uh, Adolf Hitler calls it one of his favorite films. Wow. If Hitler likes it, you know it's got to be good. I mean, he's the toughest film critic.
0: Put that on a poster. I mean, I wonder <laughs> if there is there is so much... German history in this film, kind well, of, Well, right? Grimm's
1: fairy tales, yeah. I mean, you There's know. a lot
0: of beer steins, like, that, 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 you know, it feels very German. Although, like, Snow White is at the beginning, she's wearing, like, Dutch wooden shoes. And I've always been like, why is she wearing Dutch shoes? Mm. Maybe the Germans also wear them, but I think of those shoes as Dutch. Also, by the way, everything in their house, of the dwarf's house, is carved to have a face on it. Yeah. Like, everything. Everything in that house is alive. All the chairs have faces. All the forks have faces. It's really wild and creepy. It is like kind of almost the, the organ, everything in the organ has like kind of a totem face on it.
1: You know, Walt Disney really was influenced by uh, German expressionist films uh, like Nosferatu and The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, you know, that's what he was using to kind of, you know, base... The look and feel. And I think that those ideas of faces, uh, you know, you see that, you know, even uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which came out in 1931, he, you know, he was always referencing that in story meetings as well. You you can see all these little elements.
0: And also, you know, German expressionism films are so known for their shadows and their light and their Mm -hmm. darkness. And that's in here, too. You know, I love that there are scenes, especially when, say, like the Huntsman is coming to kill her. Yeah. That they decide to make it backlit. And have light yeah. print off his dagger. I mean that they're thinking of it in terms of three dimensional light, not just animate to show everything, which is wild. And also that they're able to represent so much about light with really simple things that they don't need to make it overcomplicated. But they're like, there's a little bit of light on her arm over here. Yeah. When the dwarfs are digging out the diamonds, it's like almost they almost look like that Simon game. They're just yes, printing like yeah. in primary colors, but it looks real. Or they're just doing water with swirls of white pencil but it looks so light-filled in a way it's it's just astonishing to think of how much they thought about where a light would be in this scene so early on okay we have somebody very special on the line right now from germany all the way from germany it is kate littleton the amazing person i've been wanting to hear your voice forever hello kate hello hello So, Kate, for people who know her name very, very well, she founded the Unspooled Facebook group. She is the first moderator. There are many other lovely moderators that also are helping so much with the page. We all owe you a lot, Kate.
3: (laughs) I don't know about that.
0: (laughs) Well, just to start to put you on the spot a little bit, I mean, tell us about yourself. I know you live in Germany. I know you're moving here to L.A. soon.
3: Hi. Yeah. So, I live in Germany right now um, because of my husband's job, and we're moving to LA for his job in two months, actually. It's coming up. And we used to live there before for three years. We lived on a boat in Marina Del Rey.
0: Did you ever do Titanic scenes on your boat?
3: A lot of our friends did, <laughs> not me. It was actually really cool. The harbor that we were in, we were one dock over from the boat that Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton owned, that they filmed the biopic, because I say biopic too, (gasps) for for Elizabeth Taylor with Lindsay Lohan. She actually, I think, drove through one of the walls in our little area.
0: Well, so you're a huge movie buff. I mean, how did you first start falling in love with the movies?
3: I don't know if I would call myself a buff. I would say I'm a big movie fan. And I have just always been a really big fan of stories in general. So books, movies, TV shows, anything. Yeah. And I've been really excited about doing the AFI 100. So when I heard there was a podcast about it, I was like, oh, I'm so in.
0: And so all the way back then, right when we first started calling the show, uh, you said, I call Snow White. Snow White is my favorite (laughs) film. And so I'm going to ask you just like the bazillion dollar question.
3: Why Snow White? Well, Walt Disney is really the bigger thing with me than even Snow White. I just think he's phenomenal. And Snow White started the entire animated movie industry. It really kicked off Disney as being a brand that was recognized everywhere. I know Mickey was, but Snow White is really what drove it home. And I think if it wasn't for Snow White, it never would have been the giant corporation that it is now, which is probably a terrible thing to say, actually. (laughs)
0: you know giant corporations are good and bad I mean I was thinking so much of what Walt Disney was going through when he was making Snow White it reminds me of you know people like James Cameron like that we need this certain type of personality to drive the industry forward
3: well it was kind of interesting like who he was even like how he decided to make the movie and how he told his animators about it his animators go out for dinner And they come back to the studio and it's nighttime and he calls them all to a stage and he sits them in a half circle around him. And there's like one light bulb lighting the stage. And he says, I want you guys to hear this. And for the next two hours, he does the entire story of Snow White. He does all the voices. He acts it out. He just goes through the entire thing that he had in his head. And at the end of it, some of them were crying. Some of them were laughing. He said, this is what we're doing. This is our next project.
0: I love that. I mean, that reminds me so much of what we were talking about in our City Lights episode, which is that Charlie Chaplin was the kind of director who acted out all the performances in City Lights. So having watched all of the films on the list so far, like what's been really fascinating to me is seeing the connections between all of them. Is there anything that pops out for you with Snow White?
3: Yeah, actually, even the first episode, Citizen Kane, Orson Welles copied The intro shot from Snow White, the zooming in, that slow zoom on the dark castle with the one lit window is pulled just from Snow White. And even Wizard of Oz was heavily influenced by Snow White. So you really see a lot of Snow White's impact on the film industry and culture
0: Whoa, you're so right, because I remember when we were doing the Wizard of Oz episode, when I was going through and looking at all the reviews of Wizard of Oz, everybody kept talking about Snow White because they saw it in a chain, whereas we, looking back in history, think of them as two separate films.
3: Well, Wizard of Oz was even marketed as Snow White with live actors at one point. And if you look at the crystal ball of the Wicked Witch, you'll notice very similarly to the Magic Mirror is surrounded by Zodiac symbols.
0: Whoa, that's like, that's extra witchy. Were people into Zodiacs back then?
3: Who knows?
0: (laughs) Well, so you are thinking about getting a Snow White tattoo, and I want to hear all about this.
3: Oh, it's not just Snow White. I'm getting, from my ankle to my hip, uh, Miss May LaRue, who is a California tattoo artist, actually, who does only Disney, is doing an entire leg piece of sort of the history of Disney animation. I definitely gonna want a representation of the camera that they developed for Snow White, the multi-plane camera. So some version of that's gonna go on there because that was a huge deal. They used that camera up until 1989. The Little Mermaid was the last one that they did with it, but
0: so is your tattoo gonna go all the way up to like the Marvel history of Disney, or is it gonna be strictly old school animation
3: under his wing? It's probably gonna stick to his lifetime. It may go into the Disney renaissance. I definitely want to incorporate the park into it too. Mostly the history of Walt Disney and what he did and what he invented and made and just his legacy.
0: Also, well, I'm thinking, and forgive me if this is a bit of a stretch, but I imagine like what Walt Disney had to do in order to keep. His giant team motivated to keep everybody doing their best work, to keep everybody feeling like the Disney Studios was a good place, to be creative, to come forth with ideas, to share what they were thinking. There's got to be a touch in there that reminds you of what it takes to be a good Facebook group moderator.
3: <laughs> Maybe. It's, uh, it's definitely a, it feels like a full-time job, <laughs> making sure that the Facebook page has the right sort of tone. But I think, you know, I have five, well, four awesome mods that help me out. And I would be so remiss if I did not mention John, Stacy, Catherine, and Brendan. They're awesome. And they really, really, really help. But also just the spoolers in general, I think they all came there because they're united by something they love. And when you start from a place of love, it's easy to bring kindness and warmth into the environment. And I think that really helps a lot.
0: I mean, I love that because I can't help saying that I think sometimes of the internet as the evil mirror, where you look into the mirror and you see the worst part of humanity reflected back. And you have made it the magical mirror that I think all good princesses
3: wish existed. (laughs) I I think it's a group effort, but thank you.
0: (laughs) Okay, Thank you so much. It's been awesome to get to chat with you and to get to hear your voice before you show up here in California again. California awaits you.
3: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. No more drought, so yay. (laughs) So Amy,
1: obviously we've talked about this movie in many different ways. Um, I can't imagine no one not liking this film. Were there any bad reviews?
0: There was. There was. Here is a review from the LA Daily News written by a Virginia Wright She starts her review by talking about what a big deal it is, but she says that while Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is a brave experiment in the field of animation, it adds little to the stature of Walt Disney as a creator. She says that there is this good illusion of startling reality, but only the characters who are not human. She says that the humans detract from all of the realism and that the humans tend to move around on what she calls leaden feet. She says that somehow the sight of lovely Snow White lying dead in her coffin of glass does not arouse emotion, nor does the unhappiness of even the seven dwarves who weep quietly beside her. But the sadness on the faces of the gentle fawns, the squirrels and all the birds, is a touching sight. There's perfection in those creations. She says that there are slow and sometimes dull stretches when the dwarves are in command and that their schemes are too long drawn out and with the exception of Dopey, what? the characters are not captivating and that the dwarves wear out suspense by taking an interminable time to mount the stairs.
1: <laughs> then she says- Wait, that's like a that's a really <laughs> funny scene in the film where they're- Oh, okay. I can't even get into- That is stupid.
0: Okay. Then she says it's too colorful. Of course. Uh, And then she says that- The reason it hasn't pleased her as much as she hoped, it's because that these human characters (laughs) have interfered with Walt Disney's imagination and slowed down the tempo of his work. So she's basically like, I wish you'd been doing more animal stuff besides concentrating on this movie. (laughs) This person really wants some more
1: raccoons up in the mix. They're like, more birds and pie, please. She
0: does. She says, in striving harder for reality, Disney has not found it. And only these little creatures who bound in and out of the production are like reminders of Disney's true field of art, have the kind of reality which makes for greatness.
1: Jeez Louise. All right. Well, I mean, look, you can't win them all. You know what? I was just realizing it was like my totally stone thought. Like Disney went from drawing humans into animated characters to now using humans to act out animated characters. Like in movies like The Jungle Book or The Lion King. It's like, it's interesting how in an attempt to create realism we're getting more and more to live action human movement
0: and and we were and, still saying the same things like yeah. in the jungle book i thought the animals i'm agree with the virginia right the animals were the best part of the movie and they right. looked incredible when the tiger got wet i was like wow
1: i know wet and like i remember seeing toy story for the first time and going like whoa, it looks like a real like those are real humans uh now you look at it and you're like whoa that was bad um You know, we talked a little bit about uh, prequels earlier, and I wanted you to know that in the early 2000s, uh, Disney Toon Studios did uh, begin development on a computer animated prequel to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs titled The Seven Dwarfs. Um, It was basically how the dwarfs met and how the evil queen killed Snow White's father and took the throne. According to the writer of the film, uh, it also centered around how Dopey lost his voice Witnessing the death oh, of his God. mother. Whoa. So once Pixar came witnessing into the picture. Witnessing
0: the death of his mother? Yep. I am so sick of their mommy issues uh, and their daddy but issues. But by the way, I
1: mean, did, he didn't, that, it takes away the thing. They said he didn't ever talk because he never tried. It's a funnier thing for a dumb character to never have tried to speak instead of being Uh, having post-traumatic stress disorder from watching uh, the execution of his parent.
0: Every single modern Disney film is just like, my daddy or mommy screwed me up. It's so irritating. The Mad Hatter, when they had to give him like this backstory of his bad parents, like, are you kidding me?
1: Well, look, I mean, it continues on. In March uh, 2016, they announced uh, a new film called Rose Red, a live action spinoff told from the perspective of Snow White's sister, Red Rose, which, you know... (laughs) Gosh, and now even a feature-length Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was announced. Uh, they're writing the script and penning new songs. Uh, and if you turned into Disney XD in 2014, there is a TV show called 7D, which is just a Seven Dwarfs uh, that happened 30 years before the events of the original film. Hi-ho! Here we-
0: 7D. 7D. That just sounds like a bad boy band.
1: <laughs> 7D, 30 years before Snow White, Wait, they rocked out. I Nessie know what House. they're going to
0: sing. I know what they're, they're going to yeah. sing because it would not be eight episode where I could do this and did not do this if I did not have a tragic rap song for you.
1: Oh, man. I was going to say. Okay, go ahead. So <laughs> <It's gasps> why you twerk. Go ahead and start and be the pussy board and we'll so while you twerk <laughs> Alright. At least that's at least that's the yin yang twins. I'll take that any day. Um, I was gonna say that their song would be like Hi Ho, but they'd be at the club and be like, Hi ho. Hi-ho! And it would be women that would be walking by them.
0: Well, I am shocked they haven't done that. And I actually feel like if I looked harder, they probably have. <laughs> um, Amy, uh,
1: is there a Simpsons? Does animation bow to animation?
0: But of course, this is from the episode Selma's Choice. She takes the kids to a theme park and they meet their version of the Seven Dwarves. They are called, of course, the Seven Duffs. They are all bottles of beer. There's Tipsy and there's queasy There's Surly and Remorseful.
2: Hey!
1: Take a picture; it'll last longer. Get out of here! By the way, uh, also surprising this uh, <laughs> this movie, uh, we didn't hear uh, "cheese dick."
0: <laughs> Which of the dwarves do you think would be most likely to say "cheese dick"?
1: Oh, definitely Grumpy.
0: <laughs> what if Dopey just finally spoke, and that was all he said? Oh,
1: so cheese dick. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think we've come to the agreement that this does belong on the list, right? I mean, we've talked about this a little bit at length here. Yeah. Um, so. I think, though, after seeing this and knowing that there's only two on the list, I want to see more animation on this list. I think there are other worthy films, even though they're not the first, and they may follow somewhat in the footsteps. I think there are equally captivating animated films. And maybe not from Disney. You know, maybe we go to a different place. You know, whether it's... It would
0: be interesting to see us get out of first culture on this list.
1: Yeah, I'd like that a lot. You know, Amy, instead of Rolling the Die... In light of recent events, we kind of made a little bit of a change.
0: You know what? Everybody has been talking about this movie, so we figured let's just talk about this movie. Let's talk about 1976's All the President's Men, the Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman movie that is about the takedown of Richard Nixon.
1: Yeah, that's right. So instead of rolling a die, we're just going to watch All the President's Men, so we will see you next week. And
0: um... this episode, we did do the call in of Name a Dwarf, and I am tempted to name All the President's Men, you know, like mm-hmm. corrupty. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but let's do something else So let's do this instead How about we cast The future Who should play Robert
1: Mueller? Right, because I mean Woodward and Bernstein were just Regular Joe reporters And then all of a sudden These two giant stars Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman Play them And they make them I would say iconic You know, this, that movie really kind of uh, Catapults them So let's think out of the box here Let's make an iconic choice who could play Robert Moore?
0: Call in, as always, Soren 747 666 5824. That's 747 666 5824.